Uh, Lord God, we trust not in ourselves now and not in any human strength, but we trust in your spirit as we come to his word, this word he wrote thousands of years ago, but inspires and speaks today. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us now again, we pray. For we ask in our Saviour's name. Amen. Please do take a seat. Uh, We're continuing a series in Exodus and are slowing down at the Ten Commandments. Um, So we're going to read two passages uh, today. Uh, The first is from Exodus 20, and we're looking at the second commandment. And then we're going to flick on uh, to read a second passage uh, in Exodus, uh, which we'll turn to a bit later. Uh, So to start with Exodus 20. Remember, children, God has brought his people out of Egypt. He set them free. And he says, now this is how you get to live. And this is how I want you to live. This is how freedom looks like. Uh, All the rules that he gives us are not rules to get ourselves saved, but rules to live in a way that honors God and is at the same time the blessed life. The law is a good way to live. As John says much later, the law is not a burden, but a blessing. It's not just that we have to, but that we get to. What is it that we get to do and have to do this week? Well, let me read uh, Exodus 20 and verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's under, in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And then if you turn on a few pages In Exodus to chapter 32. Exodus 32. At this point in the story, they're still at Mount Sinai. Moses has gone up into the clouds and Moses has disappeared. He's getting more laws from God. And the people are down the bottom. And it's been a while. So, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain... The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. So Aaron, that's Moses' brother, Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people who you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. 
Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Well, we're going to leave the story uh, there. We'll come to it in more fullness another time. Uh, Safe to say that Moses intercedes and pleads and God is merciful. Uh, What is going on in this second commandment? We're going to spend most of our time in Exodus 20, so it's worth having uh, that open. I'm ready to flick back to 32 when needs be. Uh, this second command, what is going on? At first glance, it seems very much like the first, doesn't it? Uh, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Verse 4, don't make yourself a carved image. The image word there is that a word that's always used of a false god in Scripture. The first and the second commandment, both at first glance, seem to be saying, don't have any other gods. In fact, so tightly related are they that in the Roman Catholic Church, um, they treat both sort of what we call one and two as just the first commandment. I've still got to get to ten because um, the Bible says there are ten commandments, ten words. So they then split the coveting one in two. And coveting your neighbor's wife is different from coveting other things. Ultimately, it doesn't massively matter how you number them because God doesn't number them. But I think this um, understanding, the way that the Jews uh, label them or number them and the way that we're taking them, Uh, makes sense because what we see in this verse is a progression from what we saw last time Uh, let's look first of all what's forbidden we're going to think of what's forbidden why and then how we can keep the commandment that's going to be our pattern today what is forbidden well we mustn't make or the Israelites must not make carved images of anything anything in heaven up in the skies or heaven anything that's on the earth or anything that's in the sea at this time, it's about making and then bowing down to worshipping images. You see, it's not just the making word. Here, verse 5, it's also not bowing down to them or serving them. The serving word is the worship word. Serve and worship are kind of interchangeable um, uh, in Hebrew. Now, what God is not saying here is no art. Maybe some of you are artistic. I'm not at all artistic, but some of you will be artistic. You like drawing and making images, you know, painting a... That'd be seen of a, I don't know, a cow in a field or something like that. Um, is that a breach of the second commandment? God says, make no images of anything on the earth. You know, cows on the earth, so no cows. No, no. Uh, we, we know that from just reading the, the rest of scripture. God himself commands Moses in just a few days time from the action taking place here to make all sorts of images or have all sorts of images made when, when they make the tabernacle. God's going to construct this or get the Israelites to construct this tent a bit like his, his sort of mobile home. And he's going to ask them to, to create cherubim, these kind of angelic creatures, to stand over the Ark of the Covenant, this box that will hold the Ten Commandments. So the very, the very living space of, the, of the, the Ten Commandments is going to have images stood on top of it, commanded by God. Later, when he, he, he commands the building of a temple, he, he asks for kind of pomegranate trees to be carved into the, into the, you know, into the pillars and all the rest. So it's not just a, a blanket ban on art. Rather, it's about making things that you then worship. Making things that you then worship. Uh, Certainly, that includes other things. That's the overlap with with last week's commandment. Uh, You don't need to know an awful lot about kind of world religions and and history to know that in many cultures, uh, people will bow down and worship Statues, whether statues of sort of godlike carved figures or animals 
or birds or, or fish. Clearly, that is put offside by this commandment. But I suspect it is not a massive danger for many of us here today. Very specifically, the carving of an idol and a bowing down to it. I would imagine if I was coming to a home, I mean, you wouldn't have a kind of idol room. I remember someone telling me about going to look at a, uh, going to buy a house. It's back in Derby. And um, uh, they, they looked in one room, and basically the owner said, you can't go in there. And the reason was, it was a shrine in there. They shrine to another false god. Um, and, and these people weren't followers of that religion, they were Christians, so I think they couldn't go in that room. But that is unlikely to be us. If it is you, don't do it. But this commandment still has relevance for the church, uh, for our day. Uh, one very obvious application to the church more broadly is that churches, or when we gather together, the church is the people, not the building, but when we gather together, we're not meant to be bowing down to or kissing or kind of kneeling before or anything like that, any kind of image. Now, you'll know there are lots of church buildings you can go into where exactly that kind of thing happens. Um, kids who get taken on um, uh, tours of churches at primary school, you know, go and visit a mosque, go visit a synagogue, go visit a church. Um, when they used to come to, to my old church uh, back in Derby, very boring. Teachers massively underwhelmed. Because okay? there's, there's just nothing interesting in it from their point of view. Okay? There's, a, there's a pulpit and some seats and a load of Bibles. Like, oh. But you go to a Roman Catholic church, there's all sorts of images. There's, there's Mary, an image of Mary. There's St. Patrick uh, or St. Thomas or whoever it might be. And if you've seen worship services from... Uh, various other strands of the Christian church, then there is an awful lot, frankly, of bowing to uh, images. But again, I suspect for most of us this morning, that is not a pressing concern. It might be for some of us, perhaps we've come from a more kind of high church background where that very much has been encouraged. But see here, the commandment is pretty clear. It's very clear, in fact. No images of anything to be bowed down to. No images at all in worship. But perhaps it cuts a bit closer to the bone when we realise or think a little bit more about the idea of not making images of anything in heaven above. Included in the second commandment is the idea that we shouldn't worship images of God. We shouldn't make images of God, in fact. Not just we shouldn't worship them, we shouldn't make images of God and then worship them. Uh, that's why we read the story from Exodus 32. Remember the setting? Moses has gone up Mount Sinai. He's gone away up into the clouds. And the people get jittery. He's up there for a long time. Okay, he's up there for about 40 days. And the people start getting nervy. They've seen Egyptian religion. Okay, they've seen pyramids. They've seen statues of great gods. Gods that look like things that they understand. Gods with the heads of dogs or gods related to rivers or gods in the shape of a frog. And all these religious deities of Egypt, that they're real and near and you can touch them. And, and we've just got some words from a guy up a mountain. And so do you notice what they do? They don't say, right, forget Yahweh, forget the Lord our God. Uh, let's worship Ra or, or Set or, or Baal or Dagon, one of these other gods. Uh, no, it's a little bit more subtle than that, isn't it? In Exodus 32, uh, when they come to Aaron, who's Moses' elder brother, going to be the high priest uh, of Israel, 
Now what happens? Uh, well, they take off their earrings, they take off their gold, and Aaron fashions this gold calf. And what do they say in verse 4? These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In other words, this calf, this calf represents the God who brought us out of Egypt. In other words, this calf represents Yahweh, the Lord. And that's made even more clear by Aaron. Verse 5, Aaron built an altar, and Aaron made a proclamation saying, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Not to this gold calf, he's got some different name. No, it's a feast to the Lord, to Yahweh, where we'll worship this golden calf. In other words, the golden calf is an image of God, Yahweh, the true God. They haven't broken the first commandment exactly, they've broken the second one. They've made an image and are using the image to worship the right God. Right God in the wrong way, you might put it. Do you see how the second commandment adds to the first? Tightly linked, but adds to the first. It's not just that we have to worship the right God, but that we have to worship him as he says, in the manner that he says. And very particularly, we shouldn't make images of him. Now, this is where it does begin to get a little bit closer to home. You you can feel the Israelites' anxiety. I've got to trust in this God that I cannot see. Whereas all the other religions, these powerful nations who are much bigger than us, they can see their gods. I've got to trust in a God that I can't touch. Whereas all these other powerful nations have gods that you can bow before and touch and kiss. And I want a God who is nearer. I'm I'm not satisfied with just the word that has come to me through his servant Moses. It's just a man who's gone up a mountain and come down again and told us that God says this. That's all I've got. And it's not enough. We're not in a totally dissimilar situation, are we? In fact, there's real similarities between the making of this covenant at Sinai and the making of the new covenant, the covenant era we live under. At Sinai, Moses goes up. He's the leader of God's people. He goes up into the clouds, up the mountain, out of sight. At the beginning of the new covenant of Pentecost, beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus goes up into the clouds out of sight. And the temptation has been to to want to bring him back down again before his time. He promises he will come back. But until then, we've been told we have to trust in the words that he has given us through his servants, the apostles. But there's always been a, a pull to want to, if you like, drag Jesus back down out of heaven. Children, it's like trying to sort of send a grappling hook up to heaven, a kind of hook, and pull Jesus down. I want something tangible, physical, closer. I'm not happy with just his word. I want ways of feeling close to God that go beyond simply his word, the Bible. And indeed, baptism of the Lord's Supper, these two pictures that he's given us. I'm going to come back to this a bit later uh, on. But, But the desire to have more than God's word, to somehow create an atmosphere using physical things or images or whatever it might be that makes us feel closer to Jesus. It's one that's never really gone away. It might be an obsession with 
um, the kind of theatrics of a worship service. It might be an obsession with the, the environment, you know, the candles, the smells, the bells. It might be the smoke machines and the noise, whatever it might be. It is trusting in anything other than the word of God carried by the spirit to bring Jesus to us. God wants to be worshipped and he wants to be worshipped according to his word. For us to trust in the word alone and let the word shape our worship. Um, now, as, as, as an elder at Christ Church, the elders are given the job of overseeing the, the church and caring for, shepherding the church that involves caring for the worship service. In a way, this command is a great relief to me. It's a relief in the sense that I do not have to be creative. In fact, I'm pretty much forbidden from being creative. Which is good news because I'm not creative. It is not my job in the week, as, as I plan the service, to try and think, well, how, how can I think of new ways, inventive ways, to make people feel like Jesus loves them? Or feel close to him? What tools can I use? What videos can I find on YouTube? What... Now, my job is to have the word shape everything. I'm to meet God in the place he has told me, which is through his word, primarily. No special places, no special images, no special atmospheres, his word. And that is where he's promised to bless us. It's Valentine's Day. And you're, you're married and your, your wife says, I will meet you at um, some romantic restaurant. I'll meet you at I'll meet Burger King, okay? Burger King at half seven. Yeah, you've been away, perhaps been away with work. Oh, I can't wait to see my wife. Where, where do you go and when? You go to Burger King at half seven, don't you? Is it possible your wife might be in Starbucks at four o'clock? Possible. She can do what she wants. But where has she promised to be? Well, she promised to be at Burger King at half seven. So that's where you go. God can do what he wants. Okay? He's far greater than us. If he wants to ride on the wall, he can do it. If he wants to send a host of angels, he can do it. He can do anything he wants. But where has he promised to meet his people when they gather together? Well, he's promised to be there through the word. And so that is why the word is central to everything we do on a Sunday morning when we gather. I can't spend too much time now talking through the whole kind of worship service. But I hope you see, and if you're new here, I hope, I hope you sort of pick this up. That actually what we try and do is simply what God has told us to do. As you read the New Testament, you, you see that God's people are commanded to pray. You, you, you see that the minister Timothy is told to publicly read the scriptures. That he's told to preach the scriptures. You see we're told to sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. That's the reason we sing psalms as well as other things. And we're told to celebrate the Lord's Supper and baptism. And that pretty much is it. That's why I've never asked you to, to paint during a service. Paint what comes to you. It is totally legit to do that on your own if you want to do that, to the glory of God. I've never asked you to write all your sins on a little whiteboard we put on the, on the chair and then symbolically wipe them away. Totally legit if you want to do that at home. But I, I can't command you to do something in worship that the Lord God hasn't commanded us to do. I'm just not allowed. That's why you should feel free when you come, that God willing, the only thing you're going to get is the word of God. And the only thing you're going to be asked to do by the, whoever's leading the service is stuff that God has asked you to do. 
Now, this command ultimately is freeing. Again, we meet God where he's promised to meet us in his word. And we need not be trying to think of clever other ways to kind of bring Jesus closer. What is the commandment given, though? Why is the commandment given? Uh, do you see the reasons attached to it? Now, these, well, these tend to, to really jump out at us. Verse 5. Don't bow down to these idols, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God. Straight away, we're, we're sort of, our hackles are up. Like, what do you mean you're a jealous God? I understand God is a holy God, a loving God, a merciful God, a, 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 an all-powerful God, an all-knowing God. What do you mean a jealous God? Surely jealousy is bad. Well, of course, jealousy can be bad and often is in us. In fact, almost always is in us. But, it, but this can't be being used in that sense. God is not sort of spiteful. Two things. Uh, first of all, God always tells the truth, doesn't he? He always does what is right. Is it right that human beings should give God all their worship and shouldn't bow down to Allah or Vishnu? or Baal, or Dagon. Yes. And so he's not going to deny that truth. It is right that we worship him alone. And as we keep saying, it is for our good. It will do us more harm if we're adulterous. And God knows that, which is why he commands us to worship him alone. It is not a, it's, it's not handcuffs, it's freedom. Don't enslave yourselves to other gods, in other words, he is saying. Do what is right. I am jealous for your affection. It is a good jealousy. It's a kind of jealousy in that sense that a husband might feel towards his wife. What should a husband feel if his wife came to him and said, look, I'm going to love you Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, but I'm also going to go and see you know, someone else on Tuesdays, Thursdays, Sundays. Would a good husband say, well, it's not for me to demand exclusive loyalty. You know, who am I to say you can't run off with another man alternate days? no. A husband would rightly say, no, we are bound together. Uh, your, your affection and my affection is exclusive. And that is what God is saying here. In fact, later on in the Bible, he calls this day the, uh, a wedding day, okay, the, the day that he married his people. So God wants and deserves a wholehearted worship, exclusive worship. And yet see how it goes on. I am a jealous God, verse 5, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. See, there's a promise and a warning, particularly given to fathers here. Now, this is tricky, isn't it? It's both sobering and encouraging. Don't miss that the grace vastly outweighs that the judgment, if you like. It's a thousand generations that God shows love to. Third and fourth, that he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children. It, it is tricky, and I think there's, there's, there's lots we could sort of try and tease out here that we perhaps don't have time for this morning. What is very clear is that the actions of the father have implications, ramifications, consequences for his children and his grandchildren, and even his great-grandchildren. In the days of Israel, they lived in households on the whole. You know, you'd live with you know, the father and the son. And, the... And, and you just can't get around the fact, can you, that God says that if the father becomes an idolater, turns to another god and worships another god, 
There will be consequences for the children. I think, by the way, that's the reason that this warning and blessing comes after the second commandment, because the first two commandments are the kind of headline ones about be loyal to Yahweh. That's why the, this, this blessing and, and, and warning don't come kind of, I don't know, after don't murder or something. Because these are the, the pick two. Stay loyal to me. Keep me as your saviour and your Lord. If you don't, well, what's going to happen? What is it? that God threatens, first of all. The, the tension comes, and the difficulty comes, and not just with our own kind of like, ooh, what's going on, but also with the fact that, that later in, in the book of Ezekiel, um, God makes really clear that we each are accountable for our own lives, our own sin. Let me read to you from Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel says this, the word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, a saying was going around Israel. You know, the, the parents eat bitter food and the children's mouths go, you know, what happens to the parents happens to the children is the point of the proverb. What do you mean by saying this, God says? As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine, the soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. And so God then works out examples. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, he goes on to explain what that looks like. Uh, if he is righteous, he will surely live, declares the Lord God. And if he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, who does none of these things, and again, a big description of being um, abandoning God, well, the son shall not live. He's done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. See, you've got, you've got a, a, a father who stays with Yahweh as his saviour and lord, and the son decides to abandon Yahweh. Well, yes, the son will, will, will die for his sins. We punish for his sins. He can't shelter under his father. In other words, don't use, I will bless you to a thousand generations, as a way of saying, well, it doesn't matter what I believe or what I do. My mum was a believer, so... And then God does the same thing in Ezekiel 18, the other way around. If you've got a father who abandons me, who turns to other gods, and you, the son, say, no, I'm going to leave my father's ways and worship you, Yahweh, stay with you, the true God. Well, don't worry, you will live. The father pays for his own sins, and you're not going to be punished because your dad has done wrong. Now, do you see how the, the tension then comes with Exodus 20? We can't make Exodus 20 say, your fate is totally in your father's hands. Bad luck. Okay, that, that cannot be what it's saying. And yet it is saying something. It is tricky, but it is saying something. It is certainly saying that the father can affect what happens to his children. Uh, one way is that very often fathers lead their children, their household. I think that's why it's three or four generations, because they live together into the same sins that they commit. And God is saying, I will leave that household in their sin. Uh, so, for example, the children of most Muslims are Muslim. The children of most atheists are atheists and remain so. Uh, incidentally, if you're not a Christian, maybe you've heard that line or you've even wondered and you know, thought to yourself about your Christian friends, oh, you're only a Christian because your mum and dad are Christians, you grew up a Christian. Two things on that very quickly. Firstly, um, that may be true, but that doesn't mean that Christianity isn't true, does it? If I came in this morning and said, um, uh, did you know that two plus two is four? 
And you said, yeah, I, I knew that. And I said, yeah, I knew that too, because David Beckham told me. That would be an, a, an illegitimate reason for believing that 2 plus 2 is 4. Okay? 2 plus 2 isn't 4 because David Beckham says so, it's because it's just how maths works. But it doesn't mean it's wrong, does it? I'm still right, well, I've got unusual reasons for getting there, but I'm still right. But secondly, the argument backfires, doesn't it? Perhaps you're agnostic or atheist or just trying to sit on a fence or whatever it might be. Well, very likely that's because that's how you were brought up too. It's an argument that doesn't just sort of you know, fire at Christians, but, but all of us. We're all, of course, influenced by our families. There's no point denying it. I think a part of that is what's going on in Exodus 20. But it's also the case, and we have to just be upfront about this, that God does treat us in family units. Uh, we see elsewhere in Scripture, um, the priest Eli, for example, in 1 Samuel 2, he sins and his children are encompassed in the punishment that falls upon him. His sons are, at least. Same with Jeroboam in 1 Kings 14. Now, of course, we're all sinful. It's not like the kids deserved mercy. But how we act can lead to consequences for our children. God is not obliged to leave our children who have enough sin of their own as they grow up. God is not obliged to, to, if you like, protect them from our negative influence. This is meant to be sobering for fathers. However quite the process works, it is serious, isn't it? How you live affects your children. Um, You're responsible for bringing them up to be disciples of Yahweh. You're responsible to encourage them to worship him and be loyal to him. Their, Their upbringing or training or education, they're all the same thing. It's all meant to be directing them towards the one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, what, whatever, whatever tools you use to do that is more or less up to you. And maybe you, need to, you decide you're going, to, you're going to train and disciple and educate your children at home. It may be that you've got a school that will do that for them. Great. But everything needs to be pointed them in that direction. Somehow, they're raising needs to be all pointed toward this one-hearted loyalty to Jesus. And the great promise outweighs the, the warning, doesn't it? Showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me. On the whole, God pours his love down the generations. I know there are exceptions, okay? It's not automatic. But on the whole, on the whole, God tends to bless the children of believers with salvation. Not absolute, not, I know that. But if I, if I was to ask in this room, put your hand up, I'm not going to, but put your hand up if one or more of your parents are Christians. I would have thought at least 80%, if not more, will put a hand up. It's not mechanical, I know that. So if you're a parent and you, your children haven't yet come to faith, this is not meant to be a big beat up. But if you're a parent raising young children, it is a great thing to bring this promise to God. God, you've said you'll be a thousand, God to a thousand generations of those who love you. My children are yours. I love you imperfectly, but you have rescued me. I love you. Keep them yours. What well, does we close? What about nowadays? What about nowadays? We're no longer at Sinai. We no longer have temples or tabernacles. Where does this command point us? Uh, yes, certainly it says no images. Okay, so we don't show the Passion of the Christ or the Jesus film or whatever and, and use it to, to worship. 
but it does point us to the true image. In the New Testament, we're told that Jesus is the true image of God. And if you want to know what God is really like, you have to go to him. I come to right to the other end of the Bible, the book of 1 John. Almost the last book of the Bible. It's easier to get to the end, to Revelation, and then just reverse a couple of books. You'll find yourself in 1 John, page 1021. 1021, children. 1021. See how this works. So 1 John, in chapter 1, page 1021. John was a disciple, children of Jesus. Okay, so he was with Jesus. And just look at how he says things, how he puts it. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, a life that was made manifest. We have seen it. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. I've seen the Son of God, the perfect image of God, said John. I'm one of the incredibly blessed ones. I touched the exact image of God. Jesus, the son of God, who came down. I saw him with my eyes. He keeps saying the same thing. It's almost unbelievable. The life was shown to me. I have seen God. Think of Jesus' words. You've seen me. You've seen the Father. See me. You've seen God. At this point, you might say, well, John, that is great for you. Did you paint a picture for us? Take a film? A photo? Look how it goes on. Verse 2. The life was made manifest, shown to us. We've seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was shown to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So you too may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. I've seen it, I've touched it because it is Jesus. I've seen eternal life. I've seen God in the flesh. But to you who haven't, John says, I proclaim it. In other words, the way that we get the right image of God is by getting the right image of Jesus. And you get the right image of Jesus, the right picture of Jesus, the right understanding of Jesus from the words of his apostles, what we call the New Testament. That is why the Bible is so central. Perhaps on Sundays you say, why? you go on so long. <laughs> you preach so long. It is not because I think I'm a, you know, an amazingly gifted preacher. I, I promise you that. I know some weeks it's, it's, it's dull. Okay? I've, I've written a bad sermon. That's on me. But still, we, we ought to come hungering for the word. Christianity is a religion of the ear, not the eye. We live by faith, not by sight, Paul says. And faith comes from hearing the word, particularly the word preached. If you like, we see, children, this is a strange thing, but Christians see with their ears, not their eyes. We see with our ears because we hear what Jesus is like from the New Testament. We hear what God is like, and therefore we see. Children, we mustn't have plasticine Jesuses. Have you ever made something out of plasticine? You can make something, can't you? You can make a little, I don't know, a little plasticine alien, and then you can, you can sort of move, I'm going to push his tummy in a little bit more, I'm going to give him an extra arm, I'm going to mould him around. The temptation for the church, for Christians, is also I'm going to make Jesus in my image. I can't believe in a Jesus who, dot, dot, dot. My Jesus would never, dot, dot, dot. But we need the word of God to shape Jesus for us in our mind's eye. And that ultimately is what preaching 
is here for. In Galatians. Paul says to the Galatians who've gone after another gospel, your foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Galatians lived well after Jesus had died. Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. He was placarded as crucified. You say, oh, there you go. There's a verse that says you can paint pictures of Jesus. No, what is Paul talking about? He's talking about his preaching. That is the role of preaching, to placard, portray Jesus in his love and in his grace, in his holiness and in his mercy. So that is the Jesus you must come to when you come under the conviction of the second commandment. None of us knows God as we should do. None of us sees God as clearly as we should do. None of us has worshipped God wholeheartedly. None of us have been faithful fathers. But, but Jesus came in order, to, well, in order to save, to pay the penalty. Jesus came to show us that God is abounding in steadfast love and mercy. At the cross, as he died, we see the true image of God coming under his own judgment at sin. So much does he love and want us to be rescued that he punished himself for our sin. The wrath of God poured out on Jesus because of our breaking of not just the second, but all the commandments. And so as he hangs there, he says, come to me empty-handed. You don't need to bring anything. You can't bring anything. But I do want you home. Repent and live. Come to me and worship me. If I've done this for you, this death for you, why would you go to any other gods? Why would you think that the real comfort is found in, in earthly relationships or in money or wealth or career? Why would you wake up on a Sunday morning and think, I don't know if I can be bothered this morning to worship you? I have promised to bless you through my word that may not have the glory of an Egyptian god. It may not be as tangible and shiny your worship services might not look as exciting as some other religions. Certainly they won't look as exciting as the kind of secular gods of, of television and Netflix. The comfort you can find staying in bed, snuggled up on a cold day. There is a more tangible blessing there, isn't there? But by faith, know that what will truly bless you is coming and hearing God's word. Never mind how poor your preacher is. Never mind how good the musicians are or aren't. Never mind the, the building you're in. Come and I promise I will bless. Because that is why I've come. Wholehearted loyalty. Not just that we have to, but that we get to. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have sinned in many, many, many ways. More ways than we can begin to see about ourselves. And so we thank you that your image, uh, the Lord Jesus, came uh, bore the punishment that should have been ours and therefore opens the gates of glory. We pray that you give us whole hearts as we come to worship him. We pray that his word would fill our lives day to day, week to week. We pray that in your mercy you would allow him to be portrayed before us Sunday by Sunday. We pray you would forgive us and bless us for we ask in his name. Amen.